I get this question on my channel all the time. Scientists are looking for life as we know it, looking for life that maybe uses water and other organic chemistry to carry out its process. Well, smart guy, haven't scientists ever thought of searching for life as we don't know it? I mean, we've seen silicon-based life forms in Star Trek and other things. Yes. Yes, scientists have thought about looking for life as we don't know it. And in fact, there is a group right now that are considering Venus as a place that is completely alien from Earth, a place where you could have life as we don't know it using, say, uh, sulfuric acid as a solvent to carry out the processes of life. And so my guest today is one of the researchers who is working on this team, Dr. William Baines. He's with uh, MIT as a private consultant, has done a lot of biochemistry work in this area. And we have a really interesting conversation about like what role solvents play in life, how those conditions could exist on Venus and how we might be able to search for life on Venus, ideally bringing a sample back home and, and how this could change our perspective of our place in the universe. Is life, water-based life the common one or maybe other kinds of more exotic chemicals are actually what are more commonly out there. So enjoy this fascinating conversation with Dr. William Baines. William, the question that I get all the time from my audience is, scientists are always looking for life as we know it. Hasn't anybody ever thought to look for life as we don't know it. So as someone who is thinking about looking for life as we don't know it, and as we know it, I'm going to pass that question off to you. How do you answer it? Yeah. Um, so so, so there, there, there are two sorts of answers to the question. Um, the first is, yeah, we try to have a really broad definition of what we mean by life so that if life isn't just what we're used to seeing on Earth, um, we nevertheless recognize it as life. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of come, come back to that. I think the, the, the problem is, you know, talk about life as we don't know it. So what do you mean by life? Um, so, you know, I could say, well, hey, I've got this brick sitting in my garden. Perhaps life is, as we don't know it. But ha, 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 what do you mean by that? And so you've got, you've got to constrain it in some way. You've got to say, you know, well, life, we think has these sort of properties because the life we see around us has these sort of properties. Um, and so, yeah, it's life as we know it, but it, it doesn't have to be, you know, trees and elephants. It could be something that's physically or chemically very different, but you, you, you've got to start from somewhere. I mean, you know, this is, this is the difference between science and science fiction, I think. And, you know, science fiction can say, well, what if we had intelligent clouds of gas? Wouldn't that be cool? And, um, uh, you know, the scientists say, yeah, but but how could a cloud of gas be, be intelligent or alive or something? And it just doesn't work. So, um, so yeah, it, it, yeah, we are, we're, we're looking for life as we know it in the sense we think we understand some basic principles and properties of what a living thing must, must have and must do. Um, but yeah, that, that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, two arms, two legs and, and two eyes. I mean, I think you ask different kinds of scientists that question, what is life? And you get a different answer. They look at it from a metabolic standpoint. They, they look at it from a physiological standpoint. They look at it from a, from a chemistry standpoint. You're a chemist. What is your definition of, of life as you oh, would, I, would I, know it? Oh, I don't even try that one, Fraser, seriously. Um, I, I, 
that's the hard question I should have started with then. Yeah. Yeah, you should have started that one. Then this would be a really quick interview. Um, I I mean, I I actually wrote a whole paper on on sort of what do we understand by life? And um, and, and, and it comes back to this, you know, what do we, when we look at something and say, that's alive, what do we mean by that? And um, and and, and the, there's all sort of you know philo- philosophical arguments about the, whether you can actually have a rigorous definition of life, given that we've we've only got one example. You know, so all life on Earth seems to be chemically and biochemically related. It all seems to have evolved from a common ancestor, a common origin. So in reality, we've only got one example of life, and uh, you, you can't generalize from one example. So you know you have to, you have to say. Okay, well, what are the properties? Um, and the so, so I did this little experiment, um, and we can't do it here because they're just two of us. But but you know, if, if you have a room full of people, you can say we're going to do an observational experiment, and I'm going to ask you to pick an observational target in the room, but not a person who you know. I'm going to ask you three questions, and the first question is this. Um, is your subject alive? You know, and people say, yes, it is, or no, it isn't, because they're looking at the guy next to them or looking at a chair or something. I say, okay, fantastic. Next question. For those of you who said, yes, it is alive, is your subject human? And you know, most people say yes, and some people say no, because they're looking at a potted plant in the corner. And then third question, is your subject vegetarian? And people say, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. And, and, and this, is this it, is, is a, the thing about life. It is a you plant can, vegetarian, right? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and, and so you can, you can look at a bit of life and you can say, yeah, that's a life because it's really complicated. It's metabolism, metabolizing, it's doing all sorts of things. And you could say, well, what sort of life it is? You say that's a human, that's a potted plant, whatever. Um, but you can't tell what it consumed to get to that point. And, and, unless you know it, unless you observe it eating or unless you happen to know it. Um, and of course, as humans are omnivores, it's a particularly good example of that. You know, if you, if you look at a giant panda, you know whether it's a vegetarian or not. Um, but that's only because you know giant pandas. And I think for me, this is, this is and, and this is partly chemical and partly genetic. You know, life is a self-propagating system that has a, a coded description of itself inside. Uh, and it's not a pattern like a crystal. It's, it's a code that it translates into saying, huh, I need more of that molecule or I need more you know, fingernail or whatever. So I'm going to take something from the environment. I'm going to take the bits I want. I'm going to throw away the rest. And then I'm going to turn those bits into more of me. And it's got a plan for doing that. It's not just a sort of pattern, a concussion wave or something. And I think we see something doing that. Um, then we'll say, well, either it's life or it's a really weird thing we've never thought of could exist before. Um, and we don't know what that is, obviously, because we haven't found it. Um, so that's a very roundabout way of saying sort of what I'm looking for in life. Right. And you know when you see it. I, 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 a lot of it is you know when you see it. Yeah. Um, it's really in- interesting. There's some, there's some psychological experiments that people have done who've, who've sad, sadly suffered from um, particular types of brain damage, and they've lost the ability to recognize living things. So, um, you know, they can say, um, yeah, that's a chair and that's a rabbit. They say, so which of those is alive? They say, mm, I don't know. 
which is absolutely weird, but it suggests there's something hardwired in here that hmm. recognizes life. Um, yeah. So, Can I eat yeah. that? Yeah. Is that on the menu, maybe? I think yeah. is, the, well, is but, possibly but, the I mean, there's an obvious evolutionary advantage of doing that. Yeah, because, you know, is it on the menu? Is it, is it, am I on its menu or is it just a rock? Right, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so then when we think about life as we do know it, you know, to, to then sort of start to think about life as we don't know it, what are the kind of the fundamental things that life is doing in the way that it knows how to do it, in the as-we-know-it form? Right. So, so, so following on from that description, so all life eats and poops. Um, eats and poops, so, okay. You know, it, it takes stuff in, it throws stuff out. Um, it maintains itself and it dynamically maintains itself. So it's, you know, a, a diamond will last forever, but it, 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 it just sits there. Um, but like dynamically maintains itself and it maintains itself, I say, in, in this sort of structure for which there's, there's some sort of coded description inside itself. So it's not just copying itself. It's, it's working out what it should be and building itself. Um, as a result of that, it will evolve. And so evolution, so the NASA um, uh, definition of life is, is, is this um, a self-propagating chemical system that's capable of Darwinian evolution. In fact, Darwinian evolution is a consequence of this idea that there's a code on it because... Um, if you're going to replicate, then you're going to have to copy the code. And copying a code is never 100%. So you're always going to make errors, and that, that's mutations. And so you have your offspring will not be exactly the same as, as you. And the offspring is slightly better fitted, will, will survive better, they'll reproduce more. Um, and that's evolution. So, so this, it's sort of basic consequence of this idea that you've got a code inside yourself that means you will have evolution. Um, so evolution will happen. It will be a characteristic of life. Um, the problem with evolution, from a practical point of view, the problem with evolution as a description of life is it's really hard to see happening because it happens really slowly and it happens with whole populations of organisms. So, you know, if we were to walk around in the African savanna and say, well, is that elephant alive? We'll say, well, it's maintaining itself. It's dynamically maintaining itself. It's eating. It's pooping. Um, it's trying to reproduce. Disgustfully or not. Is it evolving? Well, we have to watch it for 10,000 years and a whole herd of elephants to see whether they're evolving. So, you know, that's not really helpful. Um, so you, you have to sort of infer the capability of, of evolution from the existence of a code. And the chemists, and I, and I should say, I should go, I'm actually a biochemist. So a real chemist would say I'm not a real chemist at all. Um, but, <laughs> okay. Um, but a biologist probably wouldn't say you're not a real biologist either. So absolutely, yeah. We're... Yeah. we're, we're we're the sort of um, we're the lost tribe in the in between the two, um, but the um, uh, yeah, a, a real chemist will say, well, how do you know? What are you looking for when you look for a code? And they they look for something um, that has chemical properties like a code. So a guy called Steve Benner in Florida has this idea that uh, a genetic material has to be a polymer with a, a charge along the background. So. So DNA, for example, has phosphate groups on the back, and they've got to, they carry a negative charge when they're dissolved in water. Um, so it doesn't have to be phosphate, it doesn't have to be DNA, but it must have that sort of charge structure. And so you might look for that um, in terms of looking for the chemical substrate on which these these functions happen. I mean, it's interesting when you think about that that idea of the capacity to evolve and how the code isn't sort of perfectly copied each time. 
for a smaller code, the code would be comp probably copied very well each time. And so you wouldn't get variation. And so you wouldn't get ad adaptation to the environment. So it's almost like you need a long enough code where the errors come in at the right number per generation, but not too many, or you get nonsense life forms, but not too short, then you'll get adaptation. There's There's got to be this almost perfect length and complexity of the of the DNA or, or whatever is the mechanism to maintain in pace with the state that things are needed to change and evolve. Yeah, that's, that's, it's, it's a really interesting point because um, so we you know the smallest codes we know of are, are ones in viruses and they do evolve. So that'd be a few thousand bases. You know, if you could imagine an organism that had just four bases in, in, in its DNA, you know, you change one of them and you've got something completely different, the organism's dead, so it can't evolve. But that's really a, almost a sort of chemical system. It's so simple. Um, viruses evolve, um, and then you go up to tens of billions of bases in, in some animal DNAs, and yeah, clearly they can evolve. So there's a big range. It's really interesting that the animals, that the organisms that can survive at the highest temperatures um, so archaea that survive in, in sort of hydrothermal vents at the bottom of the sea tend to have small genomes. And one explanation for that is that the, the rate of chemical attack and breakdown at those very high temperatures is so high that if they had a genome the size of ours, it would just suffer too much damage. They just couldn't maintain it. Um, but there's a fair, you know, the, the, there's a big range there from thousands up to tens of billions. So. Right, right. Yeah, that, that the process seems to work. Yeah, in in line with its environment, but that's kind of interesting that that the more, I guess, or you know, once the life has figured out this environment that is incredibly extreme, you can't, you don't need to vary too far off the path. Like it can get dangerous if you do. That's interesting. Um, so what what role do solvents play in in oh. inside us and inside life? Yeah, solvents. So, so this is this is the other big NASA um, thing that that if you look for life, you want to follow the water, and the reason is life on Earth absolutely obligatorily requires water to function. Um, there literally is no thing that can uh, complete its life cycle um, without water. So things could survive in a desiccated state, but you know they, they're just dormant and they're shut down, um, and. The reason for that is, is pretty basic. So we're, we're chemical machines. If you look at it at a biochemical level, we're chemical machines. And for the chemistry to work, the molecules in that chemistry have to move around, they have to interact, they have to react with each other. And that means they can't be frozen in a rock or an ice. They have to be physically move, able to move. Um, but equally, they can't be suspended in gas because they're just too big. You know, um, gas gas molecules are very small. In order to stay in a gaseous state up in the air, you know, they're bouncing around like this. Um, if you have a great big molecule like here, it just it literally physically falls out. Falls out the air. So you need something that's that's mobile and fluid, um, but is dense. And that that pretty much means uh, means a liquid. There might be one or two exceptions, but it pretty much means a liquid. So that liquid is the solvent, and it dissolves all the molecules of life. Um, and that enables life to happen. Um, water is, is really good at that, and water actually also participates in biochemistry. So quite a lot of biochemistry um, involves water molecules being added to things or taken away from things or moved around molecules. So water is also a big part, part of our biochemistry as well as just, just being a solvent for biochemistry. Um, 
And it also does really cool things with ions and protons and, and stuff like that. So there's, there's, there's lots of very cool stuff about water. But, but the key thing is it, it is a dense fluid stuff that is a solvent for life. Um, and the thought certainly um, uh, from, a, from a chemical, biochemical point of view is that any form of chemical life will have to have some sort of dense fluid to, to dissolve its chemistry. And there's certainly a, a pretty strong and, and, and yeah, well-argued school of thought that um, water is really the only one you can use. Uh, it's, it's, it's just got such great properties as a solvent, as a chemical material. Um, it's really hot, too. I mean, the water molecules are very small molecules. So you expect, um, you know, it's about the same mass as, as methane. Um, you know, m m methane boils at, at, at uh, what, 90 Kelvin? Water boils, boils at 370 Kelvin. So it, it stays liquid at really high temperatures. That means at high temperatures, chemistry can happen fast. Um, and so, you know, all those molecular interactions and so on can, can happen at, at, at decent speed. Um, so, the, so the school of thought says it has to be water. And water's probably one of the most abundant molecules in the universe. So H2O, hydrogen's the most abundant element, oxygen's the third most abundant element. Put the two together, you get water. So, you know, there's water all over the place. Um, there's water on Earth. There was probably water on early Mars. Um, there may have been water on early Venus. There's water inside the moons of, of Jupiter and Saturn, you know, water everywhere. And, and so water is doing this job where it's providing the playground for the, for the interior of the life, for the chemicals to be mixed up and do that maintenance, that intentional maintenance that you mentioned earlier on, that it's able to sort of, you know, dump out the Lego pieces into the water, rearrange them into whatever, you know, fingernail or whatever is required next, bring them back into the cells, form new cells. And at, and because it, it is so hot, as you say, it allows the chemistry to go at a at 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 a really fast pace and adapt to various circumstances that the animal or the creature is finding in its environment. While say something colder like methane, you wouldn't get that. So when I feel like it was like almost twenty years ago, fifteen years ago, like NASA released an, an astrobiology paper, like searching for life as we don't know it, and mm. and although they they were so obsessed you know, have always been so obsessed with water. They're like, fine, fine. Okay. Let's think about other solvents. So what other fluids can perform the same function as water in some way? Maybe. Yeah. So that's, that's a really good question. And it's, it's, um, it's something that we've, you know, the, the astrobiology community has been wrestling with, um, for a while. And, Definitely not come to a conclusion on. Um, indeed, not right. even not even come to a consensus on what the argument's about, really. But um, that that won't stop us talking about it. Um, so they were um, they were particularly interested in um, uh, particularly liquid methane, and that's because around that time we're getting those awesome pictures back from the Huygens lander from Titan showing rivers and lakes of liquid methane said, wow, here's another liquid on the surface of a, of a body. Um, so it's behaving like water. You know, it has rain, it has clouds, it has rivers, it has ponds, but it's at mm, and a 80, 90 Kelvin. And it's, uh, what about that? 
And then there are a bunch of others that people have, have sort of toyed with um, over the years, not terribly systematically, um, I must say. Um, they tend to say, hey, what about you know hydrogen peroxide or something? That's cool. Um, the, the, the problem with all of them is, is would they actually occur? You know, so the great thing about liquid methane is you can actually see it. There, there it is. There are ponds and lakes of liquid methane right there. Look at that. Um, where are you going to find ponds of hydrogen peroxide, given that you know, pure hydrogen peroxide will actually detonate if you, you know, strike it with lightning? Um, uh, but there have been a number of things, and as, as, you, as you know, you've you picked up, we've done a, a paper quite recently trying to sort of um, look at all these and summarize, so what, what's the state of, of knowledge with them? Um, so one of the things suggested in that, in, in that weird life report, as they, they called it, um, was hydrogen fluoride. Uh, and liquid hydrogen fluoride is a really interesting solvent. Organic chemists use it sometimes as, as a solvent. Um, the problem with hydrogen fluoride is that it's really reactive. So that if you have a volcano erupting hydrogen fluoride, it, it will react with the rocks, um, produce fluorides. It, it will dissolve really quickly in water. I say water is one of the most common molecules, so there's going to be water around. So if you've got hydrogen fluoride, why don't you have hydrogen fluoride dissolved in water rather than as a liquid? Um, so you have to think, okay, okay, yes, you can do interesting chemistry in hydrogen fluoride, and people do this, but how realistic is it as something you'd find cosmically? Uh, and this is an important, important point, actually, that, that the great thing about water is it's sitting out there. So if I'm an organism and, you know, well, if I'm me and I dry out, then I, I, I'm dead, you know. But if, but if I'm a little bacterial spore or fungus or something and... It's a bright sunny day and I lose all my water and I dry out and I just sit there. Eventually it'll rain and I'll get water back and then I'll be able to sprout back again. If I'm based on you know, hydrogen fluoride or, or something and I dry out and there's never any hydrogen fluoride ever again, then I'm dead and I don't leave any descendants. And, and so it's, it's an unstable ecosystem that can be based entirely on something that, that's not available, at least sometimes in the environment. Uh, so it's, um, people have looked at um, what's called the cryogenic solvents, so things like liquid methane, liquid nitrogen, and quite a bit of work looking around what chemistry could happen in them. Um, can you make structures in them? So a, so a big thing about water is that if you mix um, fats up with water, they don't, they don't mix very well. They form these um, globules or membranes, and the membranes are the key to being the outside of our cells of all cells. Um, can you do something similar to liquid methane? Now, you can't dissolve fats in liquid methane. They're, they're far too bigger molecules. But um, there have been suggestions you can dissolve very much smaller molecules, and they could have then assemble into something that looks a bit like a, a membrane. Um, that works subsequently being said. Yeah, people looked at a bit more detail, saying, yeah, I'm not really sure that works. But it's a bit difficult to do um, you know, in the lab. Um, you, you know, you get a big bucket of liquid methane and you stir some lipids into it, then you put it under the microscope to see if it's formed membranes and it all evaporates. Um, so it's um, it's not easy to do experimentally, this, uh, the look at these. Sort of right. So let's talk about Venus then, because that's how, you know, your name came across my, uh, my radar. You have been brought into the Could There Be Life on Venus gang's uh, work, 
And this was sort of thinking about what kinds of solvents might be available to life forms in the upper atmosphere at Venus. Yeah. What what would Venusian bacteria or life forms have to work with high up in the atmosphere there? Well, there are really only two things, um, water and sulfuric acid. Um, so as, as far as the standard models of the Venus atmosphere are concerned. So the surface, there's, there's nothing that's going to be around naturally that's going to be a liquid under those temperatures and pressures. Uh, but in the Not clouds, like liquid lead? I'm just sort of, you know, it's always, it's always hot enough to melt lead. What about lead? <laughs> and yeah, um, I did actually suggest at, 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 at a weird life seminar some years ago, you know, yeah, what about liquid sodium as a, as a, um, as a solvent for life? And people looked at me strangely. Um, uh, the problem, yeah, lead could be liquid, um, but how often do you see lead on the surface of a planet? It's it's just really rare material. Um, you want something that's going to, you know, form lakes and rivers and streams, not going to be a, a, there in a few tiny droplets somewhere. But there could be like lakes and rivers and streams of sodium on the surface of Venus. No, definitely not. No. Okay. No, okay. No, yeah. no, 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 no. That 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 was imagining a different planetary scenario to, entirely, which people said that's just. That's just completely unrealistic, William. Yeah. Please be quiet now. Stick, stick to stick to methane and ammonia, please. Yeah, right. sodium. Yeah. That's wow. bonkers. Stick to something realistic. Um, yeah. So, so there's nothing that's likely to be reasonably common and liquid on the surface of, of Venus. But in the clouds, you've got you've got this um, stable cloud layer covers the whole planet. Seems to be there all the time, and it's um, widely believed to be made of sulfuric acid. So uh, concentrated sulfuric acid, not sort of, you know, dilute stuff you can, you can buy in the store, but, you know, 95% sulfuric acid down the bottom of the clouds, which is a very strange substance um, to, our, to our, our way of thinking. It's not something that people are, are used to unless they experience it in the, in the chemistry lab. Um, and the thoughts, I'd say, you know, 10 years ago, if, if you'd asked me, could you have life that uses sulfuric acid as solvent? I'd say, <laughs> obviously not. Um, have you seen the YouTube videos about what happens if you add sulfuric acid to sugar? And um, I, you, you can look, they just put sulfuric acid sugar into a, you know, a well-known search engine and um, nothing very much happens. And then the sugar gradually goes, starts to go brown and then it goes black and then it starts to steam. And, and then this charcoaly mass rises up out of the, out of the flask or whatever. Because uh, it's completely destroyed the sugar. It's turned it into sort of dirty charcoal. And so, but yeah, well, that's what's going to happen to life. And in fact, I, I've done a couple of experiments doing that. And that is what happens to life, terrestrial life. It turns out quite a lot of chemistry is surprisingly stable in sulfuric acid. So not earth biochemistry, but other sorts of chemistry that have diverse sorts of chemicals, um, different polymers, um, things that could, in principle, hold those sort of charges you need for a genetic material, um, it turns out that most of the amino acids that our proteins are made of are stable in sulfuric acid. Um, the bases in DNA, not the DNA molecule itself, but the individual bases in it are stable. Um, so, that, so this is stuff that Sarah Seeger at MIT has been doing with her, her colleagues. Um, and um, she's just getting the results from leaving amino acids in sulfuric acid for months. And they just sit there. You know, they're fine. Um, which is, uh, wow. So um, 
So the idea you can have complex chemistry in sulfuric acid has, has very much come back to the fore. I think it makes it interesting. Um, still very controversial idea that you could build sufficiently complex chemistry to, to make life out of it. Um, and that's, that's, that's completely unknown. But it's not, you know, we can't say no, sulfuric acid, definitely not. Right. And, and it was like, if I remember the paper right, it was like all of the amino acids that are used in life are stable in sulfuric acid that no there are two or three that definitely aren't um okay and, all right okay and and a, a few others they're modified but they're modified stably so so they get a sulfate group stuck on the amino acid and then it stays there so it doesn't then go on and break down um mm. yeah a, a, a couple of them um tryptophan in particular just goes brown and then black within minutes so it's just being smashed to pieces and then um, there are all, I mean, the 20 amino acids that we use in our bodies, it's just a fraction of the larger group of amino acids that oh, yeah. life could theoretically get access to. So it could go shopping for whatever's the set that it needs to, to be stable in sulfuric Absolutely. acid. Absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and uh, this was the point of, of, of some of our some modeling work around this. We said, you know, there's, there's a big space of, of, of chemicals that are stable in sulfuric acid, either known to be or predicted to be. So you don't have to say, well, you know, um, uh, RNA, that's not going to be stable in sulfuric acid, so you can't have life. I said, yeah, but there could be something else that has the function of RNA, that has the same chemical properties, and you could use to do an RNA-like role, but is stable in sulfuric acid. So it's not, you know, completely rule, ruled out a priori. Um, Still a very long way to go before we can say, yeah, it's it's more than a wow. That might be, you know, edge edge. Ed, we're, we're, we're sort of edging from science into science fiction when discussing that. This is a safe place. That's all right. Um, <laughs> very science fiction friendly. Um, so then, how would you look for this? Let's say that you were able to convince NASA or perhaps the some private organization to fund a mission to Venus. What would you be attempting to find in the atmosphere of Venus to to test this hypothesis? Hmm. Well, a whole lot of things. Um, I think you'd be looking. Um, it depends how big and expensive a mission you could you could mount. I mean, what I'd really like to do would be to put the University of Cambridge inside an enormous airtight bubble and fly it to Venus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right, sure. Um, that's no problem. That's, that's we've got budget for that. that that's that's very doable. Yeah. Um, yeah. Backing off a little bit from that, um, the first thing you do is look for atmospheric anomalies. So if there's life in the atmosphere, the chances are it's going to be doing something to the atmosphere that you cannot explain um, from non-living chemistry. The difficulty with that is the atmosphere of Venus turns out to be really quite chemically complicated, and there are quite a lot of things you can't explain very well, but they're not, they don't point clearly to life. So the, the, um, the classic one is this discovery of phosphine, or potential discovery of phosphine. It's still controversial whether it's definitely phosphine or not. Um, but if it is phosphine, you know, what could be making it? And people have suggested, well, it could be meteorites, it could be volcanoes, it could be this, that, and the other. And none of them really seem to fit very well. But you can't explain why life would be making it either. So we just got a sort of big phosphine-shaped question mark hanging over Venus. Um, and that's going to need a lot more rigorous chemical analysis of what's going on, which we might be able to do remotely. 
So Jane Greaves, who, who made the initial discovery of uh, phosphine tentative detection, I say, um, did get some time on the ALMA telescope in, in Chile to look at Venus, um, but only got quite a short bit of time. And then people said, oh, but you didn't look at this and you didn't look at that. And hey, you know, this is a load of nonsense. Um, and not help by the fact that some of the calibration on the telescope was a bit wrong at the time. So people said, oh, <laughs> look at it. Oh, no, 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 no. So um, a certain amount of name calling going on, I must say, which is, is a shame. But um, I'll come back to an example where that didn't happen in a minute. But um, uh, So, yeah, a really big campaign at ALMA looking at it, looking at a whole number of species in parallel. So you could say, yes, it's not this, it's not that, it's not that, it's not that. That would really help. Um, going to Venus, so um, Rocket Lab in collaboration with MIT is sending a really small mission to Venus launching next year, we hope. And that's just going to try to size the cloud particles, which hasn't been done since the, the 1980s, um, and also look for fluorescence. So if it's pure sulfuric acid, there should be no fluorescence. End of story. If there's something else in there, particularly complicated organic molecules, they will are likely to fluoresce. So that at least oh, tell you there's some weird chemistry going on in the cloud droplets. Right. No, not necessarily life, but not just particles of sulfuric acid hanging around mixed That's in. That's right. With, yeah. Yeah. And and the hope is that will then stimulate, encourage people to say, well, let's send a much bigger mission that can. You know, the, the, this one's just going to send a little ladder. It's just going to fall through the clouds. Wow, you know. So um, years and years of planning and, you know, a year to get to Venus and so on. You've got about five minutes data and that's it. Um, right. <laughs> wow. Um, not the University of Cambridge as you'd hoped. No, not the University of Cambridge as I hoped. But, you know, the next thing will be a much bigger mission with a modern. So the, the Pioneer Venus gave some of the best data on the constitution of the atmosphere. Um, of Venus. Um, that was, what, 40 years ago? Um, and yeah, uh, analytical instrumentation has moved on hugely since then. Um, the ability to have onboard software and computation that analyzes the data it gets in and, 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 and uh, you know, adjusts the instrument accordingly and so on. So something much more sophisticated like that and, and that would probably be a big NASA mission rather than a, a smaller private one, because just because the scale and the cost. Um, to really analyze the atmosphere and the droplets. There's this really intriguing thing about the droplets. One of the Soviet Vega descent probes um, had an instrument on it that collected a few drops of cloud particle and just measured the elements in the, in the cloud particle. And it couldn't detect light elements like oxygen and carbon and hydrogen, but it could detect the relatively heavy ones. And it found sulfur, of course, because sulfuric acid. Um, and then in some of the droplets in the lower clouds, it found a lot of phosphorus. And, huh, what's phosphorus doing there? Yeah. We don't know. So, you know, more sophisticated analysis of the cloud particles say, is it really phosphorus? So, so there's this hint that it might actually have been detecting paint falling off the spacecraft as it fell down and through this, through this atmosphere. Um, so, you know, it's, it's so, so something more, more sophisticated, much more sophisticated analytical equipment to, to really look at that. Um, the next stage beyond that is you say, well, we don't just want to 
a probe that parachutes through the atmosphere. We want a probe that parachutes into the clouds and then hangs there below a balloon and does serial sampling and for months and months collects, you know, here's a really interesting cloud, cloud particle. We're going to collect that one and look at it for several hours. And then here's another one. Um, um, and I suspect that those will all find some really interesting, really weird things. It comes back to your weird, weird life question. Really interesting, really weird things, and people argue about them intensely. And they'll then say, well, the only way to find out is to go to Venus and get a sample of those clouds and bring them back to Earth. And then you can distribute them you know, to Harvard and Yale and the University of Cambridge and all the rest and say, you know, here's your three milligrams of, of, um, of, of Venusian clouds. Now go find out down at the, you know, nanometer scale what's happening in them. I mean, like the um, Osiris Rex have done with the, with, the, with the Bennu samples. You know, you bring back a chunk and then you distribute tiny, tiny bits around the world and they can get incredible amounts of data from those tiny bits because they've got an entire university around them to do it. So, um, I mean, are we going to be in this inconclusive land until there's a Venus atmospheric sample return mission? I think we probably will, yeah. Um, I mean, if you think by analogy with Mars, you know, Mars in the 1970s, the Viking rovers landed on Mars and say, yes, we've definitely found evidence. We don't know what it means. Um, and people have been arguing about that evidence ever since. And we've sent a number of rovers, any number of orbital missions. People still can't agree whether there's life on Mars or not. Um, and Mars isn't covered with clouds of sulfuric acid. So, you know, if you try to land um, you know, any of the Mars rovers on Venus, they just dissolve as they went through the cloud layer. So, you know, that would be, um, uh, uh, you need a whole order of magnitude, tougher technology to withstand that. So, yeah, I, I think until we get um, sample return, we're un very unlikely to get a definitive answer. I mean, we think about, about Venus, and although it's horrible today, it probably wasn't always horrible in the past. And so it may have spent hundreds of millions, if not billions of years in a state that's kind of similar to Earth, liquid water on its surface, a thick atmosphere, plenty of nitrogen available in the atmosphere. Like there's more nitrogen in the atmosphere of Venus than there is on Earth. Than there is on Earth. Um, it's just very dry, not a lot of hydrogen to work with. Um, and, and so it's like, you know, we go back to that idea of life finding a way. If life is in this deteriorating hellscape, but it does have this process of evolution, does it, does it have it in it to find a way to survive in a place that's just becoming a worse and worse home? And, uh, and yeah, so would and, and that's, that's the, the most likely scenario that if there is life in the clouds, it's how it, how it got there. Um, yeah, no life on Earth has adapted to anything like concentrated sulfuric acid. I mean, the, the most extreme acid-loving organisms can survive at about pH zero, um, which is which is incredibly acid. You know, if you spilt that in your hand, it would not be good for you. Um, but that's still, you know, that's only a few percent sulfuric acid dissolved in water, whereas this is 98% sulfuric acid, and it's completely different chemistry. So nothing on Earth could, could come close to surviving in that. But if a life form had a billion years to adapt to it, who, could could it do it? Um, it's not clear. 
It's not clear also whether it could adapt to use sulfuric acid as a solvent. So we would tend to think that it's if if Venus was clement on the surface, and that's by no means um, uh, uh, definite. That there's some there there are some models that said, yeah, actually Venus has always been an uninhabitable hellhole right from the right from the get go. Um, but if it was clement, if there was water on the surface, then you've got water-based life evolving there, and then it migrates into the clouds. Um, and does it stay water-based life? It somehow finds a way of protecting itself, wrapping a little shell around to keep the sulfuric acid out and the water in. Um, or does it say, hey, you know, forget water. Sulfuric acid's the thing to go for. Um, that second part seemed really hard to imagine because it would have to throw out its entire biochemistry and invent a new one. And mm. even over a billion years, could it possibly do that? Yeah, um, questionable. And so when you think about like just the universe itself, and you mentioned how water is made of hydrogen and oxygen, two of the most common, common elements out there. Um, water is everywhere. We see it in the solar system. We know that it's, we see it in other solar systems. It makes sense to go after the low hanging fruit, to go after the, to go after the water. Um, do you like, I mean, I can get why people are so excited about thinking about life as we don't know it, but it's, like 99.99 you know percent water is what we see out there and so do you think that there's like we have enough other environments that we stand a chance at at finding life that's made its way into these or it's just like water's just so dominant water's definitely dominant and and i think the strategy of say look 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 for look for where there's water makes perfect sense um, it was originally formulated in the context of, of looking at Mars, um, but I think it makes, makes perfect sense in all the worlds. Um, there's some really interesting observations on planets around red dwarf stars. Because um, red dwarf stars um, in their early life are much more luminous than their sort of final equilibrium main sequence luminosity. And so if you have a planet orbiting around a red dwarf star, that's the right distance away from the star to have liquid water on the surface in its early life, then when the star cools down, it freezes solid. So there's no, no liquid water. Um, be like sort of, you know, Enceladus or Titan or something. Whereas if you've got a planet that's orbiting really close around the star, when the star settles down to its main sequence, it's in a nice clement um, region, the so-called habitable zone. But early in the life of the star, that planets you just baked and it might it might lose everything yeah um so those sort of worlds you might say well actually they'd have been baked dry of all their water um so what's left and then you're left with heavy materials like carbon dioxide um like sulfuric acid potentially or sulfur dioxide um so there could be a set of of, of planets out there that are much now, have much less water uh, availability than, than we see um, in our solar system. It's sort of more like, um, conceivably more like Venus, or like Venus might might be if it moved to the sort of orbit of Mercury. Um, you know, so um, on those worlds, I think it's, it's it's worth thinking. You know, do we just rule those out, or do we say no? There might be some really interesting chemistry going on there. It might be life. It might be something else, but, you know, hey, if we can look at it, let's do it. And when you think about red dwarfs being the most common star in the universe, 
that in fact that environment of a of a terrestrial planet that's very close into the star, it got its water baked away. Now it's still now it's in the habitable zone and has other chemicals that are left to work with. That could end up being, and you still have, you're still getting a lot of illumination, you're still getting a lot of radiation energy mm. coming from the star to do work with. Yeah. It might be a, you know, while there might be a lot more water out there, it's all very cold under ice, not a lot of chemistry or, or even energy that the life forms can use. But these, I don't know, these uh, sulfuric acid based life forms that are really close to the star are everywhere, bathed in radiation and getting work done. And so yeah. it's an interesting idea that if you think about like the total, I don't know, watts available to life, it might be that that's where the vast majority of it is. Yeah. And, and we just don't know. Um, and a lot of work's gone into looking at the TRAPPIST-1 planets, for example, mm -hmm. uh, to try to... Um, to try to determine whether they have an atmosphere at all, because this little model will suggest the close-in ones would have most of their atmosphere baked away. And I'm not completely up to date this, um, but my understanding was that the preliminary data suggests that, yeah, actually the, the more close-in ones have no atmosphere, and then there's That's been right. some hints from James Webb that actually maybe they do after all. So the the most detailed observations that have been done is no atmosphere on both of them on the two close ones and we're waiting for the third one right although it's there are sort of hints and rumors and speculation but it sounds like the people working on this are just taking extra time to make absolutely sure um i i interviewed a, i've interviewed a, a bunch of people on atmospheric analysis and Red dwarf planets don't look so great. <laughs> like yeah. it could be ten years from now that planet after planet has been found completely devoid of atmosphere, and at this point, the search is on for you know stars more like the sun. Yeah, and um, but right now we don't know, so let's try. No, and 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 that's it. No, we, so we don't know whether this sort of baked dry but still keeping some atmosphere planet is you know one in three or one in ten thousand. Um, yes. And uh, well, we don't know. We don't find out. I mean, that's that's the, the beauty of James Webb and that we can, you know, people have been scratching around for tiny, tiny bits of data and now they've just opened these enormous barn doors of data and it's pouring out. It's just yeah. amazing. It does feel like we like it's all we're talking about. And, it, and it's not like I'm trying to, you know, it's not like we're trying to just focus our efforts on, on Webb. There's just so many interesting papers. It works so fast all the time. It does the work in a 30th of the time that it would take Hubble Space Telescope to do it. It's able to stare at it, the targets continuously. It doesn't have to sort of think about the orbit going around the Earth. And so it's just, it's such a productive science machine that, and there's so many papers that are really interesting that we're, we're covering. So it's, yeah. yeah, it's a it's a weird and, time to be reporting on this. And, and the one thing I really regret about James Webb is that it can't point at Venus. Um, mm. because it's too close to the sun, because you'd need about 10 minutes James Webb time, and that would answer a whole lot of questions about Venus's atmosphere. Um, but but, but, but it's, if Venus is too close to the sun, it would it would mess up at the, the optics, so you can't do it. So yeah. just going to wait Maybe for James Webb too. Maybe its last act will be to, to try to stare at Venus briefly before it drifts away off into space. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I want the answer before that, Fraser. I want it. I want it now. It's like twenty-five years from now. You're not. You're not okay. Yeah, I understand. Uh, well, hopefully, you know, the mission will have gone to Venus, sampled its atmosphere. The you know Cambridge Annex Venus will be uh, you know alive and well, doing science on Venus. So, so I think you know by that time everything will be everything will be great. Uh, William, what are you obsessed with right now? Oh, um, wow. What am I obsessed with right now? Um, a couple of things. So um, uh, quite a while ago, we, we published a paper which we called the All Small Molecules Paper, which was trying to catalogue all the possible things that, um, that, that life or geochemistry could put into an atmosphere, and about 16,000 molecules. And, um, and we said, here it is, it's very cool, and life produces these ones and doesn't produce most of them, and great, off you go, guys, play with that. Um, and I've been wanting to try to model, could those be produced by abiotic processes, by volcanoes? Um, and that turns out to be a really difficult thing. So I got a, a computer in the other room that's churning through a bunch of calculations on this. Um, takes about 24 hours to run through one set of calculations. And I look at it, thought, oh, that didn't work. Tweak the parameters, try it again. Um, that has been a mild obsession for several years um, to try to get all that to work. Um, it's, it's a sort of box ticking exercise, but I think... One of the interesting things, if you can say, look, this type of molecule is produced by volcanoes under this type of condition, we could look at an exoplanet and say, well, do you see those vo those molecules in the atmosphere? Mm. Um, so that would be quite cool if we can do that. That's, inter um, that's interesting. So, so hold on, I understand this correctly. So it's like you've got a list of all the possible small molecules, and then you're saying – you know, these are the ones that we know are produced by life. So if we find them, that's great. We, these are the ones that we know are produced by volcanoes. Okay, so if we see those, that you know, that makes it ambiguous again. But let's find if there's any possible way to produce these with volcanoes, and so that if we see some of these molecules that just like we don't see in Earth's atmosphere, maybe you've got some life as we don't know it producing chemicals, but you've cross-check that against your volcanoes list and you know that volcanoes can't do it. And so yeah. these chemicals are are sort of really interesting to find. Like if you find any of these chemicals in the atmosphere of a, an exoplanet, that requires further study. Yeah. That, um, and that's the that's sort really of, interesting. Uh, lots like of, so, so on, a, on an immediate, um, on an immediate uh, a, a sort of time scale, that's what I'm, I'm wrestling with. And I'm, I'm the sort of person that having, you know, having dug myself an enormous hole of an enormous possible task to do. I, I just keep on digging. Um, uh, well, it, it is interesting to see sort of the work that, say, large language models and artificial intelligence and stuff is is starting to do with this. I know there was recently novel forms of antibiotics developed by just, you know, feeding chemicals into a version of AlphaGo and just saying, like, you know, try to win the game. Yeah. using these chemicals and it was able to find entire classes. It was able to predict doing like a al algorithmic tree search, able to figure out potential paths and routes to follow. And so some of this kind of work might be more doable now with these kinds of tools. Yeah. Um, and what I'm hoping is, is my sort of um, very linear, you know, um, traditional ap approach to this at the moment 
well, so I'll say, here's some cool stuff. Now what we need to do now is really up the game and, and use some you know, much more sophisticated techniques to, to say, yeah, but exactly what sort of volcanoes and that sort of thing. Um, so that's sort of one aspect. And the other much broader thing as I've been interested for a long time is it comes back to this, you know, weird life concept. You know, what are the what are the rules underlying the chemistry of life? Um, so why is the chemistry as it is? Could it be something different? So we did a... Uh, we did a paper a, a year or two ago on the use of silicon by life. You know, could you have silicon-based life forms? And the answer is not really, um, for a variety of reasons. But yeah, I so said, why doesn't terrestrial life use silicon in any way other than as as silicate? So you know, a lot of grasses, diatom shells, sponges, and things uses silica as a as a skeleton, but they don't make silicone polymers or something like that. Why not? And Try to find rules around, around the chemistry like that and the patterns of it. Um, and that sort of overlaps with, with the other half of my life, which is in, in therapeutics discovery and uh, a biotech startup which is interested in the process of aging, which is basically when your chemistry gradually breaks down. So, um, yeah, finding you know, rules and patterns of chemistry of life. And if that informs whether that could work in sulfuric acid or liquid methane or whatever, um, that's also cool. Uh, that's interesting too. Like I can see that there, these, these chemicals we've chemists have been able to figure out how to make them do really interesting things with silicon and all this kinds of stuff. And you would think, well, life has had billions of years playing around with this molecule and it only came up with really rudimentary purposes for it. So there's gotta be some chemical reason why it hasn't, you know, made flexible knee joints out of silicon or who knows, mm, right? Whatever yeah. you would be looking for it to do, that it would it would do a better job than what life came up with. And so it's weird that it didn't. So it's, so it's like, is it, you know, it's a trap? It's a, you know, there's some good reason like, why life says, you know, that is forbidden. Yeah, and, and for silicon, it seems to be very pragmatic. The way evolution is very pragmatic. There are almost anything you can do with silicon, you can also do with carbon chemistry. Um, and for an industrial chemist, it might be much more expensive or much more difficult. Um, but, but life doesn't have the same sort of constraints. And it takes a lot of energy to take silica, silicon out of rocks or out of silica and turn it into an organosilicon compound. And it just life never seems to evolve the, a sufficiently powerful need to say, yeah, I want to do that. Mm. Um, so it's just sort of pragmatic, one step at a time. Okay, how do I solve the selective problem right in front of me now using the elements I've set hanging around the cell? Um, oh, you know, take that carbon atom and that one and stick them together. Yeah, good enough. That'll do. Right, um, right, right. You know, three and a half billion years, that's what happened. Right. Um, we made spider thread. That's good enough. Yeah, yeah. Right. And, but, and, but imagine and, you made silicon carbide, you know, body armor. Like a, an animal could use that quite effectively if it could think of it. It could, but then why not use diamond body armor? Yeah, you know, right. Um, which is just carbon, or why not just evolve faster legs? You run away quicker. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, so it's 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 all the sort of uh, and um, there's the trade off. In, you know, do I put a huge amount of energy into developing body armor, or do I just breed faster? Yeah, um, yeah. But when you think about like the just if say all of the chemicals on Earth are this giant supermarket. And then, and then all life is just going in, going straight for the carbon bin, 
yeah. and then going, you know, and that's it. And not even looking at anything else that's out there just because they're just, they're comfortable with what carbon could do for them. Yeah. And, and, and life uses quite a lot of other elements. I mean, it uses nitrogen, sulfur, phosphorus, um, selenium, a um, little bit of boron, and then a few molecules, you know, so, so there's lots of, lots of stuff it does, but yeah, it, it, it comes back to carbon because it's, it's really powerful chemistry. Um, and again, there's lots of it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating work. William, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Good luck with your plans to move parts of Cambridge to Venus, but also in the search for life as we don't know it uh, out there in the universe. Not to mention life as we do know it. I'm sure if we find life as we do know it, you'd you'd be all right with that too. If we find life of any sort, I will be very happy. That sounds great. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with William Baines. I'm going to talk some more about sort of my thoughts and perspective on this, but first I'd like to thank our patrons. Thanks to Abe Kingston, Hey Twyla, Dougie Stewart, Stephen Krasaki, David Richards, Mark Ancis, Joel Yancey, and Tony Lofilara, Dustin Cable, Vlad Shipland, Modso, George, David Gilton, Andrew M. Gross, Jeremy Mattern, Josh Schultz, and Jordan Young, who support us at the Master of the Universe level, and all of our other supporters on Patreon. It's funny, this question about why do we search for life as we do know it, when we also should consider expand our mind to think about life as we don't know it. And it's like the low hanging fruit that, you know, if I said, could you give me an apple? And the first thing you would do is you may look in your fridge to grab an apple. And if there's none there, then you might go to a store and buy an apple. And if it's not there, then you might pick an apple from an apple tree. And if you can't find any apple trees, there's no apples in stores, none in your fridge, then you're going to start looking in strange places. If I'm really demanding, you're going to check the trunk of your car. You're going to look under the bed to see if one rolled under there. You're going to start looking in the places you don't know. And there's so much water in the solar system. And so scientists have just barely begun to search for life as we do know it. And we know that wherever there are you know, every single place on Earth, wherever liquid water forms, we find life without exception. And in these acidic environments, in various pressures, the bottom, you know, several kilometers down under the rock, high up in the atmosphere, under frozen lakes in Antarctica, life is everywhere. And so we know there's liquid water in other places in the solar system. Is there life there? It's a good place to start. And if we check and check and check and we don't find it, then let's try some places that we don't know it. That said, people are thinking about life on Venus. People are thinking about life on Titan. So the search continues for life in the universe. Now, if you're interested in sort of how life got started, that's a totally different conversation about abiogenesis. And I've got a really interesting interview that I think you'll enjoy. All right, we'll see you next time.